3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and we begin as usual with Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when as True Blue Aussie acknowledged Reconciliation Week by largely ignoring it, it took a transnational behemoth, Rio Tinto Planet, to celebrate the week by destroying 40 or more thousand years of indigenous rock art and artefacts in the Pilbara. Quite legally, of course. Uh, so your destruction was approved by the local Terranilius people? Of course not. We, we received approval from the very highest sources in Perth. Terranilius people in Perth. Of course not. What, what's your obsession with these terra nullius things? In fairness, some transnational behemoths offer to move the rock at their very, very own expense so they can get at what they want to get at, which, as a preservation policy, does seem to have the odd, fairly obvious flaw. But in this case, there is a delightful little connection to how terra nullius became terra nullius in the first place. His Majesty's invasion of the place, because one of the big shareholders in Rio Tinto, the planet is, her most gracious Majesty, her very self, and she owns everything that's under all that rock art and the land itself anyway. There have been moments when we've thought maybe things will improve, light at the end of the 1988 Bicentenary March and related events in Sydney, and when thousands and thousands of people marched across the Harbour Bridge to celebrate reconciliation, and I may have stumbled upon a key factor in what went wrong. For in a telly news piece about that day, they showed a smiling little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages, which explains a lot, perhaps everything. Across the Terranullius continent, when the government was handing $132 billion to caring employers to pay their wages bill for them, JobKeeper, it said it couldn't afford to pay those who missed out. Work visa holders, overseas students, casual workers who couldn't prove continuity because they are casual or, or declared casual by their caring employers, and discovering its arithmetic was so spot on, it was about 50% wrong, a minor $60 billion miscalculation. Well, a fortuitous miscalculation for work visa holders, overseas students, casual workers who couldn't prove continuity. Uh, uh, sorry, the government said. Well, not really sorry, but it said it couldn't afford to pay those who missed out. Many of whom also missed out on uh, are also not eligible for jobs but are eligible for standing in the ever-growing queues at soup kitchens and other handouts as long as they practice distancing. Although as they grow, or well no, the reverse, shrink, become thinner, that won't matter. And we assume they won't qualify for job maker, the latest derivation in the job vocabulary, job keeper, job seeker, job maker. Yes, why all these job variations? For us, we hope it's a job saver assume won't qualify, and even if they do, by the time it comes into being, they'll be so weak from starvation and the ravages of the weather, they won't be able to make it to wherever they have to make it to anyway, and they'll qualify for 
Job Bludger, putting them on a par with those on Job Seeker, apart from the fortnightly few dollars in their bank accounts, if zero in those accounts constitutes account. All because many caring employers, the people from whom the government takes its orders, or sorry, uh, seeks advice, couldn't even fill in a form properly, and huge numbers of them declared they had 1,500 employees. A statistical anomaly we'd think just may have hit the alert button, prompted the odd question. Apparently seeing nothing unusual in a small country hairdresser, for instance, employing 1,500 people in a town of about 800. Not that it'll matter much longer, as Big Supremo scuttled them more lash sign has taken a leap out of former Big Supremo nuclear hawk himself's book getting true blue Aussie together, aware that caring employers and lazy avaricious workers are all in it together. A common cause, that common cause then and now, to keep wages down. In Nuclear Hawks and his big economic guru, Paul's solution, having the public purse pick up wage increase and making unions acting as unions illegal. Yes, pay the boss's wages bill, but we're even luckier now because this government's already done that. And the wisest, of the wisest of the wise exponents of the greatest little economic order advise us we must reduce wages or there won't be jobs. Workers will price themselves out of work, leaving us to ponder then who will be doing the work, but the wise advise us they have to slash wages and conditions so they can increase wages in the future. And if the ACTU does not agree, we cut all them when the caring employers want. It will show the evil unions have not put down their weapons, unlike the government and the caring employers who've put down their weapons and shown their neutral credentials by declaring we must lash wages and conditions to get true blue Aussie together. Now, this put down your weapons bit, we know that even if there ever was class struggle in this country, it disappeared during the Accord period are getting true together, and whenever evil unions or even the Socialist Party ever so occasionally suggest there might just be the odd difference between caring employers and lazy avaricious workers approach to some issues, like, say, gross exploitation, then the evil unions and Socialist Party spokespeople are expressing class envy where there is no class, but all being good, loyal, true blue Aussies. So, I suspect that scuttled him despite his true Christian love the dear baby Jesus nature when he said we'll all lay down our arms, put down our weapons, being kind to the only party that carries weapons and clings to the dated shibboleth of class struggle, making it easier for them. Because if caring employers and scuttle them, the government, had weapons, then why would they have weapons when there's no enemy to destroy? And, and they never consider destroying the evil unions, for instance, even though the evil unions wander around with their wasted weapons. Uh, so it's a bit of a mystery, only clarified by that thought that Scuttlebem was being diplomatic and kind. One person keeping his job, the architect as they call him, of Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country lockdown rules, conservative advisor to the most conservative Dominic Cummings, was in trouble for his goings, but this time he was staying, this time he has no intention of going anywhere, declaring the guidelines he drew up encouraged people to go out once a day and drive 400 miles across the country, then drive to a community event you didn't attend to see if you're capable of driving 400 miles home again to observe the lockdown. Now, 
I know I think I can say safely we, listener, would have thought that having driven 400 miles for his daily exercise to get there would have indicated he was capable of driving 400 miles in the opposite direction. Still, he knows the rules. He drew them up. Speaking of non-reality, the world's biggest twit, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, was forced to criticise his policy outlet when Twitter corrected one of his manic performances by suggesting it mightn't quite be true that the facts didn't match Donald's assertion. Well, rats, forcing poor Donald to declare Twitter was interfering in the democratic process. Uh, how has it interfered, Donald? It criticised me. Worst criticism ever. Ever. Uh, how do people interfere in the democratic process then, Donald? By not voting for me. Worst not vote ever. Ever. We started with Reconciliation Week here being celebrated with the destruction of sacred sites by Rio Tato the planet for a very worthwhile cause, its profits, but if ever reconciliation was needed, it's over there, with Donald attempting to play the mediator by threatening wild dogs and bullets, because the people protesting are apparently the criminals, not the murderers who were just doing their job. Another, so, sorry, maintainer of law and order, killing another non-white person by holding him down with a knee in the neck until he was dead. Garrotting, garrotting seems to be a popular police method of execution, knowing that when an Afro-American person gasps, I can't breathe, he, in this case it is a he, is lying because you can't trust what these people say, unlike the truth we're bound to get from the responsible authorities. So finally, ironically, those authorities are accusing those protesting every execution murder by the state as the party threatening Law and order. Good afternoon. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And now the final part of my interview with Sasha Gillies-Lukakis about time in Cuba earlier this year, studying at two universities in Havana. Just stay with religion for a moment. I know that in the early years of the revolution, people, well, religion was frowned on. What did you find out about the situation now? Uh, yeah, at the outset of the revolution, well, uh, the church had always supported the status quo, the Catholic Church in Cuba. They had been very firm backers of the Batista dictatorship um, and US influence on the island. And when the revolution triumphed, they continued to be vocal vocal opponents of the revolution and its, and its program of reforms and, and radical changes, they actually ended up, this is a little-known aspect of Cuban history, they, with the US government, organised an operation called Operation Peter Pan, and that was essentially, they, it's essentially Cuba's stolen generation. They ended up more or less kidnapping a bunch of Cuban children 
not as many, of course, as, as our Indigenous here, but, you know, several hundred and flew them over to, to the United States to try and, you know, I guess educate them the right way. And I put right in scare quotes, of course, because the, the Catholic Church still enjoyed, you know, considerable, like, trust and confidence among the, the Catholic community in Cuba. And they had essentially convinced the followers of the Catholic faith that the government was planning to, to send their children over to Russia. They made up all sorts of lies to convince the Cubans to, to give them their children um, for this one week. And in that week, they shipped them all over to the US. The church has certainly acted in a very, very um, morally dubious way in Cuba. And for a long time, religious practice was always tolerated and um, you're always allowed to go to the church to you know to, to pray or to, to, to practice your faith but yeah any other sort of activity religious activity was was very much regulated and and as well that the sources of money for the church as well were tightly regulated after the revolution and I mean that was deliberate I mean the revolution's aim was of course to break the power of the church and the Catholic institution in Cuba since that point there's been a number of developments the Pope visited Cuba in the late 80s or 90s or early 90s, I believe. And the, the most recent Pope as well, um, I think he is also, he's also made, made a visit to Havana as well. And since that time, religion isn't viewed with the same hostility that it once was. In terms of the regulations, they've actually remained pretty unchanged since those earlier times. Um, it's still a tightly regulated sector, the religious, uh, you know, religious just sector. But we have noticed that as there's been a closer, I suppose, interaction with the Miami Cuban community, it has actually emboldened some of these, these extreme religious elements in Cuba. And a good example of this was um, during the discussions over the new constitution, particularly around the issue of same-sex marriage. There was a, an evangelical church. This wasn't, they weren't in fact Catholic, this, this particular group. They had very close ties with, um, with a number of conservative church institutions in, in Miami, in Florida. And they were some of the most vocal critics of approving same-sex marriage um, in the new constitution. They campaigned you know, quite fervently against it. They tried to get businesses to, you know, to put up these signs saying that, you know, um, marriage is the union between a man and a woman, nothing else. And thankfully, not many businesses did it, but, um, you know, certainly more more than we would like. And it was their influence and, and also the amount of funding that they received from abroad in Miami through personal remittances and with family members that they were able to make quite a significant impact on that debate. It's quite a tricky situation because the government obviously doesn't want these sorts of movements to have a lot of power and influence in the country. But internationally, Cuba was in the past criticised for its stance on religion, mostly, of course, from the United States and Western Europe, where the church is quite powerful. Now Cuba is isolated internationally as well. It didn't have the backing of, like we said, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, where religion was treated in a similar manner. It's certainly a precarious, you know, it's a difficult situation, but the government does need to address it because uh, that, that sort of religious fundamentalism really hadn't been seen in Cuba for a long time, or at least they hadn't made themselves present for a long time. Did you have much opportunity to get out into the countryside to visit small, town, small towns and agricultural areas? We, we, we were meant to have more, um, but unfortunately time only permitted us to have one opportunity, um, which was still just fascinating. So we visited the, the town of Cienfuego, which is about a three-hour drive, three-and-a-half-hour drive from Havana. It's a city on the southern coast of Cuba, 
close to a lot of historically significant sites and significant events, uh, most notably the Bay of Pigs invasion. That took place about an hour's drive away from Cienfuegos, where the US failed to, to overthrow the Cuban government in, in 1962. And Cienfuegos is, is quite an interesting place. It, it was traditionally a centre of the... Um, of Cuba's plantation economy, Cuba's slave plantation economy back in the in the colonial era. So, you know, going through the countryside, there's a lot of old plantations that have either been converted into, you know, information centres and museums discussing, you know, the the abomination that was slavery, or some of them have actually been converted into housing. Like we were saying, they've had to be very ingenious with the way they use architecture and they use space to accommodate the, the population. So, so that was a very interesting place to learn about Cuba's history with, with slavery. And within the city itself, Cienfuegos was the birthplace of a very famous Cuban musician, Benny More. He died um, actually quite uh, just a few years after the revolution triumphed. He's world-renowned um, as, as a Cuban singer and, and musical artist. And when we were there, we visited the Union of Cuban Writers and Artists, um, and they spoke about him and his legacy as well in great detail. It's a very, it's a very interesting city. Most cities around Cuba um, do have a very unique history. We were going to visit Santiago, which is all the way on the other side of the island, and it's the second largest city in Cuba. And Santiago was actually the birthplace of the Cuban Revolution. That's where Fidel Castro assaulted the Moncada barracks, um, Batista's military force in the city. That's where the revolutionary struggle began. And that is also um, a very interesting place in terms of Afro-Cuban history. It's considered the most Caribbean city in Cuba. It has a very um, high um, Afro-Cuban population. Some say it, um, it resembles Jamaica more closely than, than other Cuban cities, which is a very interesting observation because Jamaica is only a short ferry right away. We were meant to visit there. Unfortunately, we couldn't. But Cienfuego was certainly, was certainly a, very, a very interesting place. And Cienfuego is, of course, named after um, another Cuban revolutionary icon, Camilo Cienfuego. He fought very valiantly in, in the revolution, particularly in the central part of the island. He tragically died in a plane crash just a, just a few years after the revolution. There was several days of mourning during that period. Um, you know, Fidel Castro said we've lost one of the greatest, you know, the greatest heroes of the revolution. So, so a lot of history in that, in that city. What did you see of agriculture during that three-hour trip? So one of the most interesting developments in Cuban agriculture, and unfortunately we couldn't visit the site itself, but it was pointed out to us as we drove past it, are the cooperatives or the cooperativos. It's an interesting fusion of, of the, the state-run farm and an amalgamation of, of families or, or friends that have gone out into the countryside and decided to run this plot of land in a cooperative style. The way it works essentially is, you know, they still do receive their funding and their and the expertise from the state but with significantly less intervention from the government. Um, it is largely left up to the family and the individual or the individual or the group of individuals over how they're going to run farm um, or the piece of land and how they're going to produce whatever produce it is they're growing. They still have to, you know, they still hand the vast majority over to the to the state. They still have to report how much, you know, how much they've produced and how much they've spent of, of the government revenue. But they can also keep a certain portion of what they grow if, if they exceed, you know, if they exceed the target. Um, and, they're, and they're then allowed to sell that to earn a bit of extra money. That has always been a factor of, of the Cuban agricultural sector, but decidedly more so 
now that the, the government is trying to find ways to, you know, to stimulate the economy and stimulate production in these areas like agriculture. And they found that the, you know, that the cooperative has been quite successful, still not a dominant feature of human agriculture, but it's certainly on the rise. Of course, openly private land is, is non-existent. That, that doesn't exist in Cuba. So the vast majority of other agricultural practices are related to, you know, state-run and state-owned farming land, which, which you know, is equally important uh, considering Cuba's economic model. Um, but they found that, you know, there, there needs to now be a, a, some sort of diversification process and the cooperatives seem to be, you know, the way that they've chosen to head for the time being. Is there still urban farming? Yes, so urban farming is also something that has increased exponentially and including very recently with the coronavirus. So, yeah, urban farming was a response to the severe economic crisis of the 1990s when Cuba found it couldn't, all of a sudden it couldn't import the food that it had been importing from Russia and Eastern Europe. There really did risk being an acute, like a food crisis, a hunger crisis. You know, for some years, there, you know, Cuba teetered on the edge of, of there being a food crisis, but it never reached that point. And that was in large part um, due to the, the spread of urban agriculture. So plots of land that had been, you know, abandoned or in disuse for some time. Um, the tops of apartment buildings and other buildings as well across the city were converted into these urban farms where they now grow foodstuffs. And that's since been replicated not only in cities around the island, but um, also in the countryside as well. In a lot of places, they've now taken to, to urban farming within villages because that is, of course, closer than having to go out to a farm and, and, and get the, the produce and then bring it back, which is difficult now because of the, the fuel shortages that Cuba is facing. So urban agriculture in many ways saved the island and made sure that the population had adequate food, had an adequate food supply, particularly in the big cities like Havana since been praised by the United Nations and the, the World Health Organization as a, as a model that other developing countries should be, be investigating because, you know, most other developing countries do suffer from, from hunger crises and food crises, but they really do entertain this, this opportunity or this, this option. Do people talk about the impact of climate change? Yes, there is a, an incredible and unified consciousness over, over climate change in Cuba. And that is, of course, in large part because it is it is a small, low-lying island and it is going to be one of the places most affected by climate change. I, I hope, I want to say if, but unfortunately I think the better phrase is when the seas do begin rising dramatically in the future. So, so Cubans are very much aware that, that their island is in danger. They are constantly lobbying um, at international organisations like the United Nations and other meetings where they take part on the necessity of acting on climate change, particularly for the small islands and the communities that live on them. That's actually what's drawn them to, to Pacific Islands, to collaborate with Pacific Islands, just trying to link it to, to our region. These are some of the most vulnerable parts of the world. And they've actually developed a very foolproof plan I suppose you could call it, that, um, in the event that climate change does begin um, having a, a noticeable impact on Cuba in terms of like the water in, invading cities like Havana and ruining um, agriculture in certain parts of the island. They're, they're in the middle of constructing seawalls uh, around key parts of the island and on the archipelagos surrounding Cuba. They've got a plan for evacuation as well to strategic points across the island in the case that it ever reaches that. They have very much taking it seriously and they often you know lament the fact that countries like well they particularly um, mentioned the united states of course um, but you could equally say the same for australia you know these big countries that uh, whose governments are fully aware you know that these that these small islands are going to 
are going to suffer but do nothing about it and just continue plundering the natural environment. You mentioned in the earlier part of the interview that sanctions were squeezing more and more. How are the people coping with that? Yeah, the sanctions have been significantly ramped up over the last couple of years, particularly with Trump's undeclared war on, on Latin America, um, particularly countries. And it's not just Cuba, it's um, Cuba's two key allies in the region as well, Venezuela, of course, and Nicaragua. Fuel shipments have been cut because Venezuela is now suffering a fuel crisis of its own because of these sanctions. Foodstuffs are also not, not coming as regularly from Nicaragua. Um, that's one of Nicaragua's largest exports because Trump has, has I guess, redeclared in, in formal US policy, the NICA Act, which is a form of sanctions on Nicaragua, definitely become a lot more difficult now than it was in, the say, the early 2000s. I wouldn't be too worried, however, because it, it is nowhere near the, the level of the special period. The Cubans do have experience with this sort of thing, um, and they've, you know, they've had to face far worse, and they've survived intact. But in terms of the way that they're coping, um, the Cuban government has significantly changed the way that certain things operate on the island. For example, this was only a few months ago. They've decreased quite significantly spending on tourism and tourism infrastructure and diverted that money now to food production and to to stimulating agricultural production, not to export, just to feed their own population. That issue was, of course, made more acute by coronavirus and the, the international lockdowns. Also, they've devoted what fuel they do have to key, I guess, sectors that the population needs, to key services that the population needs, for example, public transport or cooking oil and cooking gas. So where other things, for example, a taxi may now struggle, an independent taxi might struggle to find enough fuel to do the the number of runs he normally would, but that is making sure that the vast majority of Cubans, the ones who take public transport, are still able to get from point A to point B. And And I was taking public transport while I was there. Thanks very much. No worries, thank you. You've been listening to Sasha gillies Lakakis speaking of time in Cuba, and you can also hear Sasha on the Latin American Update program here at 3CR every Sunday morning at 10.30. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Pacific nations have been coping with two crises simultaneously, beginning with COVID-19 and then in early April, a Category 5 cyclone traumatised the region, causing devastation and loss of life in Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji and Tonga. I'm joined now by journalist and author, researcher Nick McClellan. So we focus first, Nick, on Cyclone Harold, which hit a number of islands in early April. How serious was the damage and loss of life and how are the people recovering? Harold was a Category 5 cyclone that passed through the Pacific in, uh, earlier this year 
and hit particularly uh, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Tonga. But uh, the worst country affected was Vanuatu. The Category 5 cyclone passed right across the northern islands of Vanuatu, particularly uh, Pentecost and Santo, Malakula and others, and caused enormous damage. Not the first time in recent history we've had these Category 5 cyclones. Uh, cyclone Pam hit Vanuatu in 2015, and then Cyclone Winston, Fiji, um, and other countries as well. International attention is very much focused, for obvious reasons, on the... Uh, the coronavirus pandemic, but the ongoing challenges to uh, the Pacific and indeed to all of us are in part driven by climate change, uh, by the human and natural disasters that are part of contemporary capitalism, part of the contemporary ecosphere that we live in. It's caused enormous destruction in uh, Pentecost, particularly in Santo, these northern islands of Vanuatu, and compounded by the, the problem that uh, with the coronavirus lockdown, it's been difficult bringing in humanitarian support, humanitarian supplies. You know, Vanuatu doesn't have a diagnosis of coronavirus uh, and COVID-19, and they've been very eager to um, uh, lock down the country to stop international travellers coming in that might be a vector for the transmission of the virus. It's really complicated, the post-cyclone recovery, that uh, despite, you know, a lot of material being flown in uh, on military flights from Australia, New Zealand, France and so on, uh, the people of Vanuatu have had to really pull together to respond themselves. And also the rivalry between, I suppose it's more than rivalry, between Australia and China played out on the, on the runway of the airport in Vanuatu. Absolutely. You know, one of the, the real problems facing the Pacific is they have these multiple challenges the challenge, like everyone, of addressing the, the coronavirus pandemic, the ongoing adverse effects of climate change, sea level rise, cyclones, impacts on agriculture and food security, and so on. The challenge to the oceans, uh, the enormous impacts that climate change is having on the ocean environment, which is vital for Pacific economies. And, of course, the, the, the lockdown, you know, the collapse of tourism and international aviation, the uh, cut of flow of remittances, you know, people from Tonga working overseas in construction in Australia, for example, sending money home to their families. It's, it's non-citizens in Australia, temporary workers, you know, overseas students, backpackers, Pacific seasonal workers who've borne the brunt of the economic crisis that we face in Australia, you know, don't have job keeper, job seeker. All of these things compounding together have caused enormous problems. And uh, the example you gave of the geopolitics then overlaying all of that where China, the United States, and particularly Australia, are competing for geopolitical influence in the region, is there. The incident you mentioned is, is striking. The Chinese uh, foundation, the Jack Ma Foundation, which is um, a foundation set up by a guy called, as the name suggests, Jack Ma. He's the Bill Gates of China. He made a squillion dollars with a, a company called Alibaba, which is an e-commerce and technology company. He retired like Bill Gates a few years ago and set up a foundation to do development work around the world. And uh, uh, a major Chinese corporation chartered a plane in uh, uh, Shanghai to bring goods uh, to Vanuatu. This uh, company, CCECC, has been a major construction company operating in uh, the Pacific, Fiji, Cook Islands, uh, indeed Australia, but it's got a lot of operations in Vanuatu to show that they were 
good corporate citizens, you've had the Jack Ma Foundation, you've had this uh, Chinese corporation bringing in medical supplies. And the CCECC charter plane was sitting on the runway in Vanuatu when the Royal Australian Air Force uh, sent a, a jet from uh, Amber Air Force Base in Australia uh, to send humanitarian supplies because the Chinese plane was still on the runway, a very narrow runway. You know, there's only one or two forklifts in Vanuatu, so it takes a long time to unload. The Australian plane turned around and uh, it came back the next day and unloaded. But that incident was blown up by sections of the press and there was suggestions that this was deliberate. Most people think that's nonsense, but uh, uh, who knows what's in the hearts of men. You know, this has become a football where the humanitarian needs of people who've just been hit by a Category 5 cyclone become an opportunity for propaganda in the press. And, you know, as we know, there's a, an enormous push against China, push back against China by uh, the United States and Australia within the, the Pacific and, indeed, the, the wider international sphere. Nick, where does the Pacific humanitarian pathway fit into all of this? One of the things that was clear was that, as on many global challenges, climate change, um, managing the oceans, addressing the pandemic of violence against women, these are not just something for national government or local community, that they nearly need a regional response. And, you know, on all those topics, on climate change and oceans and other areas, decolonisation, there's been a trend that the Pacific Island countries want to work together. They want to transcend colonial boundaries and operate in a collective manner. You know, we've talked on this program before about the new Pacific diplomacy where Pacific countries, through bodies like the Pacific Island Forum, have tried to work together to get a common regional response. And that's important to help uh, small countries like, say, Tuvalu, who's only got 10,000 people and obviously on some questions needs support. You can't have expertise on every topic in the world with small countries like that. And many of these are least developed countries. These are really poor countries by global standards. And so, you know, having a regional collective response is important. So earlier this year, Pacific foreign ministers uh, met uh, on a virtual teleconference with uh, Tuvalu, the current chair of the Pacific Islands Forum hosting, and the Tuvalu foreign minister led these foreign ministers, including Australia's Maurice Payne, to set up what they call the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway. And this is an attempt to coordinate medical response for the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a, a desperate need for, what do I say, PPE, personal protective equipment, to be brought into the hospitals around the Pacific. There's a need for the reagents and the testing kits that will allow people to do testing for coronavirus. And it's really important to note that most Pacific Island countries, not the colonies and the territories, but the independent countries, don't have cases of COVID. They lock down immediately. Only Fiji with 18 cases and Papua New Guinea with eight so far of the independent countries have uh, diagnosed cases. Most countries, Vanuatu, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Tonga, Cook Islands and so on, Samoa, don't have any cases. And yet... Having closed the borders and stopped potential infection using the, the isol relative isolation and distance as a, as a protective barrier, they still need flights coming in. They still need uh, to get prepared for possible cases. And so this idea of a humanitarian pathway is a collective response to a global problem. Not each country hunkering down, protecting itself, saying fuck off to everyone else, but really working together. 
And it's an interesting model that can be done because there's already good collaboration by Pacific Island countries on other topics like climate change. If the Pacific nations are in lockdown, how does that impact on their ability to function? What I'm saying is how dependent are these islands on outside assistance or trade? Look, it varies from country to country enormously. There are a lot of trading countries. Um, Some of the bigger countries have uh, resources. Obviously, fisheries is one. And so, you know, the drop-off of fisheries revenues this year is going to be an enormous hit. The big killer for many countries is the collapse of tourism, international tourism. You know, basically, from late February, early March, most Pacific countries just shut down their borders And globally, as we know in Australia, international tourism was just uh, collapsing left, right and centre. That has enormous implications for some of the countries that are a huge proportion of their GDP comes from tourism. For example, Vanuatu, Fiji, Palau, Cook Islands, more than 40% of gross domestic product comes from tourism revenues, um, from people going on holidays, spending money locally and so on. So to lose 40% of GDP, literally, you know, overnight, it's an enormous impact. And it's not just the, you know, the tourist hotels that benefit, but a whole range of, you know, grassroots people benefit from from tourism. Everything from women making handicrafts that can be sold to tourists, to the drivers who pick people up off off at the airport and drop them off, and the cooks, the cleaners, uh, people who are growing food for the tourist trade. You know, it's not just people employed in hotels, as in Australia, in the hospitality sector that have lost their jobs, but all the ramifications all the way down the line. So some countries have taken an enormous hit, and you see Fiji already lobbying to be included in the so-called travel bubble Australia and New Zealand have been talking about. Fiji has had cases of COVID-19. They've had 18 cases, but they haven't had an infection for nearly a month. Um, and they're saying, look, we've got it under control. We could fit into the travel bubble. And, you know, it's a major tourism outlet. Other countries have mixed opinions about that. They're worried about possible infection coming in from Australia or New Zealand. So it's still an ongoing debate. But that's a, a real concern. But, you know, many Pacific countries are reliant on shipping and air transport to bring in a whole range of manufactured goods, bring in energy, oil and, and so on. The economies are going to take a real hit and different countries are responding in different ways. One thing you're seeing right across the Pacific is people are growing food. Indeed, one of the advantages that many people have, you know, in some Pacific countries, say Vanuatu, 80% of people live in rural villages. They don't actually see the tourists and so on. They grow their own food, they go fishing. So in that sense, it's not a huge change. But countries that have a big urban population you know, half the population of Kiribati lives in South Tarawa. Half the population of Fiji lives in major cities like Nandi and Suva. And for many people, particularly the poor living in peri-urban squatter settlements, this is going to be a real hit and people are going to do it tough. You know, the thing about this pandemic is they, there's this propaganda line, we're all in it together, but that's not true. Um, the pandemic has revealed the fault lines within and between societies across the world. Within, you see the, the gaps of gender, of class, race, where some people do it tougher than others. When they say, go and stay home, what does that mean for the homeless? What does that mean for international students? What does that mean for 
vulnerable Aboriginal communities? What does it mean for people living on the street? You know, there's, there's real distinctions within the society, and that's true on the global stage. You know, developing countries often have fairly weak health systems, and this is going to cause an enormous challenge. Um, you know, Australia's throwing literally billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars to address the economic social impacts. That's impossible for small countries without generating debt, but they will never, ever, ever pay off. And so there's a lot of lobbying at the global level to get um, soft finance to allow developing countries in the Pacific, as elsewhere in the world, uh, to ride out the um, economic depression that is ratcheting up globally. Just staying with the health issues, there's been a reliance on Western medicine and Western food. I'm just wondering whether under this emergency that people are turning more to traditional medicines and also their own food is going to make them a lot healthier. Uh, as I say, it's hard to generalise across the Pacific because you've got quite urbanised populations and other parts of the Pacific you've got you know, highly rural populations where people still grow their own food and farming and fishing and things like that. But the spread of uh, so-called junk food, you know, magi noodles and sugar and um, soft drinks and, and so on, is a major problem across the Pacific. And the change of diet and the impacts on nutrition are an enormous problem. You know, the Pacific already has a pandemic of non-communicable diseases. Some countries like, say, Tonga and Samoa have very high rates of diabetes. And um, as we know from recent experience, it's what they call the comorbidities. You know, it's not just that you get COVID, but it's problems like heart problems or diabetes or um, other other things that can tip you over into intensive care and indeed kill you. And so there's a major concern. And we'll hear more from Nick McClellan, author, journalist and researcher on the Pacific on the program next Tuesday. They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Tragically, Papua New Guinea is no stranger to inappropriate development, resulting in environmental and social harm. Recently, Dr Luke Fletcher from the Jubilee Australia Research Centre warned about the proposed freedom mine, which, if it goes ahead, will be amongst the largest in PNG. The mine we're looking at today is the Paul Grove Mine, operated by Barrett Gold, accused of environmental, settlement and many legacy issues, the latter which includes a 30-year history of human rights abuses. Many of these were detailed in a May 5 Barrett Gold AGM at a time when it was on the verge of losing access to what its CEO calls a mine 
the one-time potential. Many human rights groups have worked closely with the local human rights defenders, including the law departments at Harvard University and Columbia University, human rights lawyers at Earthwatch International, and human rights NGOs such as Mining Watch Canada and Amnesty International. Today I'm speaking with Catherine Cummins, Research Coordinator and Asia-Pacific Program Coordinator of Mining Watch Canada. Catherine, can we begin with the negotiations for a licence expansion? This began in June 2017, but the licence lapsed in August last year. What's the current situation and why has it reached this situation? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Barrick obviously started two years out before the license was going to lapse, which was August of 2019. They started negotiating both with the government and with the Poor Girl Landowners Association, which is these 24 agents that represent the landowner groups in the direct area of the mine, what they call the special mine lease area. And these are the two constituencies that Barrick figured they needed to and I should say BNL, which is Barrick New Guinea Limited, which is the local subsidiary of Barrick. Um, Barrick has 47.5% of that. Um, but Barrick is operating the mine, and so they are the key player. They started those negotiations two years out, knowing, I think, that this was going to be tough. There's so many concerns around that mine, both in terms of the people who actually live right up against the waste and the pit and who just it's a hellish situation so they weren't happy and that was obvious but the government also has not received the tax revenues that they thought that they were going to get from the mine it's a typical resource curse situation um, with a lot of tax minimization by Barrick and so for two years they negotiated they didn't get to a deal the mine permit actually lapsed last year Barrick went to court of course, none of this is very transparent, but Barrick went to court, and my understanding is that they were relying on provisions in their original agreement from 1989 that would give them a, a period of time to, even with, with their permit lapse, to continue operating as they either negotiated to get a new permit or, or could wind things down and pass things on in a good way. So they've basically been operating since August of 2019 under this court order, but having no permit. And then earlier this year, a decision was made at the government level that they probably were not going to renew the permit. And then just before the AGM is when the government, through the Prime Minister Marape, came out and said that they were not going to renew the permit, um, at which point, you know, all hell broke loose and Barrick went to court, BNL went to court, to argue, and from the court documents I've seen, they're arguing lack of due process, they want a judicial review, you know, they're really arguing that they have a right to continue to mine because they followed the process of applying for, for an extension. Is this a precedent for PNG that the government wouldn't intervene like this? I don't know any other case where they've taken this position. And this Prime Minister, of course, came in um, recently, he's not that long that he's been there, I think about a year, and he came in saying we're going to put Papua New Guinea first and we're going to review all of these resource extraction projects and see whether they're really benefiting Papua New Guinea. So I think the writing was a little bit on the wall when he became the Prime Minister that, that this sort of thing might happen. But of course he's also now facing the full brunt 
of, you know, huge multinational corporations like Barrick that have banks of lawyers and that, you know, can threaten to not only take this to court in Papua New Guinea, but also if they lose at that level to take it to international arbitration. Um, there's at least two possibilities. There's two bilateral agreements that P&G has, one with China and one with Australia, that Barrick and its partner, which is Xijing Mining out of China, could potentially use to take this to international arbitration. So Barrick's got legal options lined up, and I'm sure that they've made that very clear. Would you have any understanding who'd be assisting the PNG government in this to take this bold step? I wish I wish I could be more confident that they are being well assisted legally and in terms of tax uh, you know, expertise, because these contracts, and it's not just in PNG, but these mining investor contracts, what they call investor state contracts between mining companies and states, are notoriously beneficial to the companies and putting all the risk on the states. Um, and particularly the provisions that are buried in these agreements, which unless you actually are a tax accountant and know what you're looking for, things that allow companies to minimize their taxes. And Barrick, Barrick and Newcrest have, got, have been paying the least amount of taxes. Um, this is information that's been coming out through EITI reports, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, um, and Barrick has only paid 46 million Papua New Guinea kina between 2013 and 2017. And this is one of the things that the government is complaining about, that they're paying so little in taxes. But there's all kinds of things that can be put into these contracts that really make it very risky for states and benefit the investors. And I, I would hope that the government would have the kind of expertise on board to help them through this, but I have seen no evidence of that. Let's turn to an understanding of the history of this mine. It's been operating for 30 years. Whereabouts is it exactly? It's up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea in Anga province, and it's so remote that literally the road that goes to the mine ends at the mine. So when you get into the Porgra Valley, which is an area that I guess from the records, people, the first white people that even made it into that area was in the 1950s, and they were missionaries and gold miners, um, people who were looking for, for gold deposits. So this is a very remote part. Um, it's not that far from the border with um, Irianjaya, with Papua. Not too far from the Octeti mine, which I think some of your your listeners will be familiar with. So it's it's remote. You literally wind across um, on this very treacherous mountain road from Mount Hagen uh, for about four to six hours, depending on what kind of vehicle you have, to Porgra, and that's the end of the road. After that, it's bush. And what have been the problems for the local people? Oh, Lord, where to start? I have literally never been in a place that is so ugly in terms of the impacts on the local community of a mine. It is a hellish mine. For one thing, they didn't relocate anyone. And so they essentially moved people as they needed to, as the pit grew larger. So the people are living right up along the edges of the pit, the other thing that's just extraordinary in this day and age um, is that all of the waste from this mine just goes straight into the environment. There are no tailings impoundments, which I hope your readers will be familiar with, that normally when you have a mine, you're, the end product of the mine after you've ground down the rocks and you've extracted the ore you want using chemicals, 
and, you know, different processes, that final product, which is toxic for the environment, is normally contained. It needs to be contained in tailings and palmets. Here, it is not. It is simply piped into a river valley. That initial river goes into others, and it finally goes down 800 kilometers through an 800-kilometer-long tropical river system to the Coral Sea. So the impact is the footprint of the waste is huge. And that's just the tailing. So that's at the, the tail end of the, the mineral processing process. And it's a bright red colored material. But then all their waste rocks, so this is all the rock that they blast away to get at the ore that they want. That all gets piled into these huge waste rock dumps that have literally been engineered to move like glaciers. So they are engineered to deposit themselves over hundreds of years into these river valleys that surround the mine, because we're up in the mountains here, right? And so what's happening is this waste is slowly gliding down these river valleys all around the mine, and so there's villagers that have had to be moved for this, but also villagers that are living along the, the edges of this, these waste flows. And because this waste is so corrosive, it actually caves off the, the steep mountain valleys. And so like an entire elementary school ended up just dropping into this waste. People have to cross these waste flows to get from one village to another or to get to the market. It's hugely treacherous. Parts of this moves like quicksand. People have disappeared. Children have disappeared. The villages to keep being moved, so they get moved up higher because of the caving that's happening. And when they get moved up higher, they're, because we're already in the highlands, we're right on the edge of where people can grow the vegetables and the crops that they need for their, for their daily subsistence. And if they go a little bit higher, then suddenly carrots and other things that they need don't eat, won't grow. So people have lost land because of the mine and because of its waste flows. They've been pushed into these little islands um, with waste flows or the mine on either side. So, the, you know, people literally live in these very cramped little bits of land where they don't have enough room for their agriculture. So, of course, what's happened is people have lost their livelihood and they are panning gold in the waste flows of this mine. So they're going into the tailings that's just, you know, piped out. Anyone could just walk right in. They're going into the tailings. This is men, women, and children. They're going into the waste dumps looking for residual gold. And then, of course, not having proper understanding. They're using mercury to extract that gold. So there's health problems that are horrendous up there. And then that is what they're bringing to the market to actually be able to buy food and, and look after their families. And they themselves say that they live in horrible conditions and they want to be relocated. And in fact, when Barrick came in, when Barrick first bought out Placer Dome, so it's, this mine has been run through Canadian companies from 1989 on, but Barry came in in 2006, and they actually had a consulting firm do a report on whether people should be relocated. And the consulting firm came out that it was something like 95% of the people that they had interviewed wanted to be moved away from this place, which is unusual for Indigenous people to want to, to leave. And the consulting firm itself said that these were completely untenable and inhumane conditions for people to be living in with no fresh water, loss of land for housing, loss of land for agriculture, and very dangerous, treacherous um, living conditions alongside this waste. What about the security forces that they have up there that the mine employs to keep the people right. under control? So uh, attached to all of this, so you now have people like men, women, and children, whole villages going into the waste flows to get the gold, the residual gold that they need for their livelihoods. 
and that makes them targets for the security. And the security at the mine is two types. They have their private security guards that they bring in from all over, including other parts of PNG, and then they have the police. And there's a memorandum of understanding between the mine and the state, the, the police forces, that they can use the police forces as private, well, they're not private, they're still public police forces, but they're being paid by the company, they're being housed by the company, they're being fed by the company. So they're essentially an extension of the private police forces that they have at the mine. And all of these, both private and public, have been absolutely horrendous in terms of predating the people who are going into the waste flows for their livelihood. And in particular, women have being raped and gang raped, and we're not talking about just a few. When we started to research this properly in around 2006, reports started coming out, and both my organization, Mining Watch, but also um, the Harvard Human Rights Clinic and Columbia University's Human Rights Clinics brought people up because because it, the scale was huge. I mean, we're really talking hundreds of women, and we haven't even probably got all of them recorded um, that, that have experienced this. And the men will get beaten up. And if they're going into the actual pit to look for gold, then they're getting shot or they're getting huge rocks, boulders pushed down on them or they're just getting pushed into the pit. And so it, it's, it's really quite hellish in, in that respect as well in terms of the human rights and in terms of the environmental impacts. Then other houses are being burnt down on a regular basis because there's one village that's, that's right up against the pit and basically the company would like those people gone but rather than properly removing them every year or two all those houses get burnt down and then slowly people come back because this is their ancestral land. This particular village, Waijina, Gina, is just constantly being harassed that way. And, and and while these house burnings are going on, there's other human rights abuses that happen at the same time. You almost can't think of anything in terms of health, in terms of food security, just any humane circumstances you can imagine around a mine. This, this mine has the worst of everything. Catherine, you've been there a number of times, and as you said, others have been there too. How difficult is it to get in there, and, and what efforts are made to stop you getting in? Well, in terms of just getting there, it's difficult because the road to the mine is quite treacherous um, in terms of uh, just sort of tribal fighting that's going on. And, and so, you know, the, sometimes, especially when there were students involved from the universities, we've had to have extra security. If I go on my own, I just go with the local people. For us... Doing the work there, we really rely on the local people who welcome us and who know what we're doing and who want to help us to, to keep us safe while we're there. There have been threats shouted out by the security that they're going to, you know, take us on, but luckily that's nothing terrible has happened. But but just to sort of give you a sense of just how crazy this whole place is, you know, with all the security guards and the guns and the big fences everywhere, there's something the mine set up called the grievance mechanism. They were asked to set this up when all the issues around the rapes finally became so public that the company really couldn't keep denying this because they had been denying the rapes for years. In fact, people from Porgra came to Canada for four years in a row from 2008 on and stood up in the annual general meeting of Barrett Gold and said, your security guards are raping and gang raping our women and killing and shooting our men. And they were just told that they were crazy people. And, and the, finally, this reached a point where the company couldn't deny it anymore. And they put in this grievance mechanism, a place where people could bring complaints. 
And I, last time I was there was December 2017, and I said, look, you know, let's go to this grievance mechanism. I'd like to talk to the staff. And so they said, oh, yeah, okay, let's see if we can get in. And we went down the hill, and there was a huge fence, and there was an armed guard, and I, you know, apparently the grievance mechanism was behind this fence. And I said, well, can I come in? And the guard was so sort of nonplussed to suddenly see this white woman standing there that he opened the, the gate, and I went in with two local Porgaran women, and we weren't in there for, well, we hadn't even found the building before he was on his walkie-talkie and the armed guards were flying in from all directions in their white vehicles and they they, they rushed us out. Um, and, of course, the company later said, oh, if we'd only known you were coming, we would have, you know, made sure you had access to the grievance office. And I was saying, well, you know, this is your grievance office. If I can't even get in, how do you expect people to bring their complaints there or feel safe doing that? So even that doesn't work. What about the workers that actually work at the mine? Are they local people or have they brought people in? It's both. They fly people in through through Cairns. So there's a fly-in, fly-out operation. And this, these are, the, I guess, the, the higher positions at the mine. They do also hire people from the community. And you would think that that would make a difference. But quite frankly, when you look at how many people are hired from the community and the kinds of jobs that they have compared to the people that are flown in from Cairns and have a fly-in, fly-out operation, they've got their own landing strip. Of course, the workers would like to see the mine continue because they have jobs, but they also have other family members who are basically suffering all the ills that I've just mentioned to you. So there hasn't been a strong outcry from the workers, although, as one can imagine, they would probably prefer the mine to continue. Move forward to the 5th of May and Barrett Gold held its annual general meeting online. You attended as a proxy shareholder. Tell us how that went. Yeah, I've been attending every year, but I don't normally speak myself. If we have anyone from Papua New Guinea who is able to be there, then I will go into the actual meeting with them. This year it was held virtually, which was, you know, a little, you're not quite sure how that's all going to work out, but it also did open the opportunity for us to provide a proxy to someone from Porgra. So we actually had someone dialing in from from Porgra um, and, and also putting forward a question you basically have to type in your question and then the uh, CEO, um, Mark Bristow, responded to the question. So I typed in my question. The, the, the thing that was less, I guess, useful than if you're in, there in person is that you can't respond. So you put in your question and he answers and that's kind of the end of it. He moves on. One of the questions I asked was about a report that came out in 2018, September 2018, which was by a, a really big consulting firm on human rights out of New York called BSR. And that report said, look, you've got over a thousand claims that were housed with the company already that have been brought to the company, all human rights claims of all kinds. Um, these house burnings, people, I haven't even talked about the chemical spills that people have been affected by, um, the, you know, the rapes, the killings, um, but also people who've been run over, a young lad that was run over by one of their tractors. So there's a whole range of human rights claims that have been already lodged with this grievance mechanism. There's 940, but then there's others that have been held back because you can't get in there very easily. And BSR has acknowledged those 940 claims and have said, look, you know, you need to be dealing with these 940 claims. Your grievance mechanism is inept. It doesn't work. It's ineffectual. And they laid out steps 
for actually putting together a grievance mechanism with the community that would actually deal with all these human rights abuses. Those steps were very clearly laid out and none of them have been followed. There's been no progress on those at all since September 2018 when the report came out. So one of my questions was around that. Bristow essentially said, oh, I'm intimately familiar with this report. I've read it very carefully, but you know, that doesn't, that doesn't actually get us anywhere. And in fact, um, McDean Yapari from Porgra who asked the same question. He said, are you going to follow the recommendations? And if so, when? And if not, why not? And got the same answer. Yes, yes, we've seen the report, read the report, interesting report. Um, but there's been no progress at all on getting a grievance mechanism going. And it's very clear when you see the negotiations that Barrick has been engaged in over the last two years now, two plus years now, it's with the government and it's with the landowners and it's about money. That's, that is what they're talking about. They're not talking about the environment. They're not talking about the human rights issues. They're talking about money. How much money is it going to take to make you guys just let us go on for another 20 years? And is it also a divide and rule policy that the company is using with the landowners? And this is a huge problem in Papua New Guinea in general, right? Because the landowners, these 24 agents, have a lot of power. Um, if they sign off on something, then supposedly all the people living in the mine lease area have agreed to this. And the, there's a huge division right now within this, these 24 agents. These 24 agents are not at all united. And if you look, there was a letter that was sent just before the government said, no, we're not going to renew the lease. There was a letter that was sent. I think this was a, a last-ditch kind of desperate effort letter that was sent to the government, supposedly from BNL, Barrick New Guinea Limited, um, and the landowners. But if you look at who actually signed the letter, it's only Mark Bristow. So Xi Jing is not here at all, the Chinese uh, part owner. And of the landowners, there's only two landowners that have signed the letter of the 24. And we know that the landowners are really divided. There's probably about four factions at this point, um, with one of the factions actually suing the government over over this mine and not wanting the mine to go ahead. And, and another faction that's about 13 of the 24 agents that also absolutely wants uh, Barrick out. Um, and there have been all kinds of protests up at the mine site where people, you know, have signs that they say barrack out. And this has been going on for the last two years while they've been negotiating. So the Landowners Association clearly is not united in any way. I, I would say it's probably a, a minority at this point that have been working with Barrick. And as I said, only two of them signed this letter. We're now moving into June. Where do you see it going from here? What's a little bit concerning is how quiet things have gotten recently. Um, so there was a court just before the Barrick AGM, which was May 5th. Barrick had gone back to court, and the court had ordered that the government and the company negotiate. You could see this a number of ways. The court could be saying, look, you know, whether Barrick stays or not, and of course the government has the right to, they don't have to give away the gold that's under people's feet, right? They don't have to give a company a permit. But whether the company goes or stays, there has to be a, a, a proper handover of all of the facilities up at the mine site. So there has to be some arrangement made for how the mine is going to be handed over if it's handed back to the government. And so the court ordered these negotiations. And in the beginning, uh, the landowners that I was in touch with, and I have been in touch with a number of the landowners, were very clear. They were saying, there's no way our government's going to let us down. They're going to kick these foreigners out, and we're going to take back control over this mine ourselves. 
Prime Minister Marape was also quite clear in social media that, you know, this is his country and these foreigners shouldn't assume that they have these rights um, to mine. And that has all gone very quiet. So they've gone back to court. There have been a number of dates set and they've gone back to court and nobody was prepared, at least on the government side. And so the date's been moved. It's either June 3rd or 6th, but I think it's the 3rd. It's now gone very quiet. So I suspect that, yeah, the full sort of force of the threats that are being made, both by Barak and I have to say because the other partner is Xi Jin, it's been the Chinese government itself that has been putting pressure on Papua New Guinea, basically saying, hey, we as the Chinese government want this Chinese company to continue operating and we have all kinds of arrangements and agreements and development aid and, you know, the whole Belt and Road thing is big in PNG. And so there's a huge amount of pressure on the prime minister, both from the landowners and others that want the mine out or want Barrick out and from Barrick and its partner. Testing times for the government, as we've said before. Very much, very much testing times. And, you know, my my main concern is that the pressure is going to be huge to let this mine go on. There's going to be all kinds of money sprinkled around. If you look at the letter that was actually sent, it's on our website, from the Landowners Association, the two agents, and Barrick to the Prime Minister. If you look at the money that's in there, it's all up front. So it's like it's basically signing bonuses. You know, if you let us go, then so much, so many millions are going to go to this party, and so many millions are going to go to that party, and it's all sort of up front. Very little guarantees that in the next 20 years, state itself will actually benefit from revenues from this mine. So it's. It's hard to see behind the scenes to know exactly what kind of support the government has, but I would hope that they would have support from people who really understand these these contracts and how they're set up to to benefit the investors and not the states. I'm sure that groups such as yours will continue to support the local people, though, through all this. Very much so, but we have been very focused on the on the human rights side. So we're, we're we're the groups that we work with are basically what we call grassroots human rights groups in Porgra. And their clout in all of this is not, you know, they're not at the table, right? No one is caring or talking to them. And we are working on that. We are trying to find a way to to possibly intervene in the negotiations that are going on and find a way to get the human rights issues squarely at the table. But that's not easy to do. And even one of the, there's a 5% ownership in the mine that is split between, um, well, it's it's, it's, it's through an entity called Mineral Resources Enga which is 2.5% the landowners and 2.5% the government of Enga province. And Mineral Resources Enga also sought intervener status in the negotiations so that they could be recognized and at the table and they were turned down by the courts. It's clearly very difficult to have a say or have a voice in those negotiations. And the human rights issues as the environmental issues as well, and they're both very interrelated, don't seem to be front and center. You can talk about pressure on the government, but also pressure on the courts. Definitely pressure on the courts, absolutely. Oh, Lord, where to start, right? I mean, this is a court system that also has its weaknesses, and and it's not the kind of situation you would want to to have such an important decision made because what they're asking for is another lease for another 20 years with no commitments to clean up the environmental issues, with no commitments to the human rights issues. So another 20 years of the kind of chaos and destruction that's 
been going on for the last 30. So it seems unbelievable that this would be allowed to continue. I've been speaking with Catherine Coomerins from Mining Watch Canada. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. And now to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. As in previous interviews or talks, Bob, there's still the issue is COVID-19, and now we have countries like Australia and the United States pushing for China to be blamed for just about anything, and also with their connection with the WHO. What would you like to see as an inquiry? We really need a very measured inquiry that doesn't just focus on China, that looks at uh, the whole world and our relationship to nature and the way that we do business, the way that we, um, for instance, contain uh, farm animals in high-intensity industrialised locations where crossing of viruses and bacteria from animals into the human population is um, really now a high-risk enterprise. So we do need to change our ways. Over 100 countries, of course, are calling for the inquiry. We're just insistent that unlike Australia and the USA, it should be a global inquiry into high-security labs, one of which we have right here near Geelong, Australian Animal Health Laboratory, as it was known, which uh, in April changed its name to the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness. So they're now focusing on uh, human viruses and uh, other pathogens as well. I mean, it's worth a look at their website, I think. If you Google AHL, A-A-H-L, um, High Security Labs near Geelong, and you read what they have to say about themselves, it, it's interesting for decades now, they have been helping, as they say, to protect Australia's multi-billion dollar livestock and agricultural industries and the general public from emerging infectious disease threats. Now, it is a level four, so it's the highest containment. People who work there are in um, spacesuits uh, with um, oxygen and so on being fed in from outside. But even that laboratory has had its uh, problems over the years with uh, ensuring containment. And yet, again, on the website it says it is a high containment facility designed to allow scientific research into the most dangerous infectious agents in the world. Some years ago, uh, for instance, they were containing a um, Newcastle disease, which is a disease of poultry, allowed a worker who had become contaminated, had got the Newcastle disease in her eye, sent home from work without any clean down or uh, containment of that particular disease. And another fault at the facility saw uh, a researcher trapped in a, um, an airlock on a weekend and died uh, some years ago as well. So all is not perfect there. Getting back to farm animals, there's a problem at the moment in Timor. What is that? Well, that's to do with the um, African swine fever, uh, which has been moving through Asia and is now in Timor. And the Australian government, um, alive to the possibility that that virus, which has wiped out hundreds of millions of pigs in China and in other parts of Asia and now has arrived very close to Australia's shores uh, would have an impact on the pig population of Australia as well. 
they were concerned that uh, probably it might be transferred into feral pigs in northern Australia and then be transferred to those domestic pigs in intensive contained environments. Last December 11th, uh, the Australian government boosted biosecurity funding in Australia by nearly $70 million, specifically focusing on the swine fever, but there are other animal-borne pathogens around that they are very concerned about as well. So biosecurity uh, has been, a, or was prior to COVID's arrival, quite a focus for frontline biosecurity. They were going to hire another 130 officers to do something like a million more passenger screenings of people coming into Australia each year uh, because of the concern of uh, visitors bringing in particularly pork products. They would be checked at the airports and at the ports around Australia. Their concern is that if, uh, if the swine fever gets into Australia, it would decimate the pork industry, which um, at the moment, according to the official figures, contributes over $5 billion a year to farm incomes and uh, regional economies. The exploitation of um, pigs and the production of pork, particularly for export, is of key concern as far as the biosecurity is concerned. And this is not the first time that farmed animals are responsible for viruses around the world. No, no, there are other examples, particularly the chicken viruses, which have come out of intensive chicken production in, in Asia especially. The flu virus, for instance, is thought to have come from there. We've got to, I think, re-examine our whole relationship with animals because uh, the way that we're treating environments, chopping down their habitat, you know, with forest clearing in so many parts of the world is also bringing humans into much closer contact with animals and particularly bats, as we know um, from our own experience, you might recall that the Hendra virus, which crossed from bats into horses and then in the first instance killed a, a horse trainer in Queensland in the town of Hendra, that's where the name Hendra comes from, uh, some years ago led to a vaccination program. So all of the horses in Australia are now vaccinated against Hendra. In relation to horses, in Thailand there's a virus which has struck dozens of horses there. It was reported in the uh, Weekly Times late in April. There they're moving very quickly to try to figure out where that virus came from as well and crossed into uh, horses which seem to be um, a potential reservoir for um, dangerous pathogens as well because humans are constantly in touch with horses and other um, domestic pets and so on as well. So it's not very clear yet without a proper inquiry about what's happened and the situation that we find ourselves in because I think governments are now readying themselves for other pandemics as well. This may only be the first. Coronaviruses, of course, have been known for a number of decades. They have crossed into humans before on several occasions, not with the dire consequences of the COVID-19, but we're in a time of change and I think we need to be thoroughly re-examining our animal husbandry practices uh, of uh, animals for uh, meat and uh, other consumption and also our relationship to the natural world where we're um, mistreating animal habitats so that they are much more prone to cross diseases to us 
and then there's a third strand which is the high security labs there are two of those in Wuhan but there's also one near Geelong here in, in Australia indeed there are the biowarfare labs as well like Fort Detrick in, a, in America which was closed last year for a time because of non-compliance with biohazard uh, requirements of the American government as well. There are laboratories all over the place that despite the 1975 international treaty banning biological warfare agents have continued to do what they claim are research into defensive strategies to ensure that if somebody else does the wrong thing and decides to make a biological warfare agent that they themselves will be ready to respond. It's a pretty weak rationale. Again, there needs to be an inquiry into actual compliance with the uh, biological warfare treaty as well. And to just um, bring that or those research programs, which are in many, many countries uh, around the world, under control as well. We need the gaze of the public onto these um, issues and yet at the moment they're mostly uh, being done secretly and without our knowledge of what's actually going on in the labs. And where does genetic manipulation come into all this? Well in the course of doing research genetic manipulation does occur. The scientists were very quick to uh, jump onto uh, Nature for instance. Nature magazine ran a, um, a rebuttal of the idea that uh, the COVID-19 could conceivably have been genetically manipulated but the the scientists who wrote the letter to nature which was published in which our people like Norman Swan on the ABC for instance saying no it couldn't possibly be have been genetically engineered omitted to note that the re, that the the people who wrote the letter to nature didn't say that the COVID didn't come out of a laboratory because of course they've got viruses um, particularly in the case of the Hunan um, laboratories, they've got umpteen viruses that they've collected in nature from bats in the course of their research, which is a joint research project with the USA. We do need to question whether they came out of a lab genetically engineered or not. That's not the issue. The genetic manipulation of these organisms is not the issue. It's the question, did the virus come out of a laboratory? Of course, they've got as the ARL or the uh, Geelong facility says on its own website some of the most dangerous infectious agents in the world stored in those extremely high security labs. But things we know can and do go wrong and have gone wrong, ensuring containment at those facilities. So this is why we need an inquiry, but not a narrow inquiry. We need a thoroughgoing inquiry that takes all the evidence about all the potential sources of animal-borne disease into account. We need to be examining our own practices uh, in animal husbandry and our own relationship to nature because um, with 7 billion people on the planet, we're just everywhere more at risk than we were in earlier times. Although, of course, we know the flu pandemic in the 1900s and the plague in earlier centuries are just a couple of examples of times when uh, uh, viruses and bacteria crossed from animals into the human population. And of course, we shouldn't forget HIV as well, which was probably from uh, monkeys. What's happening to the humble potato, Bob? 
the stud, you're going on to a much more mundane topic here, Jan. The humble potato um, has become a lot less humble since it was genetically manipulated uh, in the USA. Now the so-called innate potato may arrive soon in our food supply. For the moment, at least, it won't be grown here, but the new innate potato is seeking approval for introduction into the Australian food supply, either as potato starch or being imported, particularly from the USA, as potato chips. Main uh, claim to fame, although it has uh, several different traits that are claimed for it, is that it will be lower in acrylamide potential. Now, this is a um, an anti-nutrient and a somewhat toxic substance that is produced in potatoes when you fry them. But the critical thing to say there is that acrylamide is really a problem if you fry your potato chips at extremely high temperatures. This potato is designed for McDonald's and the junk food suppliers of the world who want to use extremely hot oils to uh, fry their spuds, which brings in this problem of acrylamide production. Instead of modifying their systems, now we change the potato to make it suit uh, the fast food fryer. Of course, in Australia, if these potatoes come in after being approved by Food Standards Australia New Zealand, they would be primarily uh, sold into the restaurant and fast food uh, chain. And that means, of course, that there would be no labelling. If they're not retailed, where they would have to be labelled, then no labelling of a food sold in a restaurant or in a fast food chain requires any labelling as genetically manipulated. And incidentally, these potatoes also claim to have lower sugar levels, reduced browning. So, of course, uh, that's of great interest to the chains as well because they don't want the potatoes going brown if they're hanging around waiting to be uh, fried. And then there's also an agronomic characteristic as well, which is protection against a particular blight, which the potatoes can get while they're being grown. So all these new characteristics are being engineered into the innate potato and um, Food Stamps Australia New Zealand calling for submissions by July the 9th about whether or not these uh, spuds should be given a tick for the Australian food supply. I should say that Food Stamps Australia New Zealand in its preliminary assessment has said it sees no problems with these potatoes. Generally, in the ordinary course of events, they will be approved. Then, as far as the industrial food system is concerned, everything will be hunky-dory. And what about um, soybeans and corn? What are they doing there? Oh, well, this is another story of genetic engineering. We seem to have a flock of them at the moment. We just last week uh, submitted a, uh, an objection to a Monsanto product, a genetically engineered corn that, while it won't be grown in Australia initially, would be, again, approved for inclusion in our food supply. And this particular variety, Mon87429, as the corn line is known, tolerates being sprayed with up to 12 different herbicides. In the industrial production systems, you can have a tank mix of herbicides. You can send your sprayers into the field 
uh, with up to 12 of these different herbicides uh, on board, spray the hell out of everything to kill the weeds, and of course then the corn uh, will also likely contain residues of these synthetic chemicals and that will require both the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and Food Standards Australia, New Zealand to tweak the so-called maximum residue limits for these um, herbicides which include glyphosate which is the Roundup product, glufosinate which is another Bayer broad spectrum herbicide, dicamba, 2,4-D and then there's a whole class of herbicides called FOPs. There are eight different herbicides in that class and it would tolerate all of those as well. Not only do we have the GM traits engineered into the uh, corn, but also the potential for high fructose corn syrup and other industrial ingredients coming into Australia being laden with uh, synthetic chemical residues as well. Uh, which will be massaged to make sure that the product is compliant. Again, no labelling rule would be required because it would be an ingredient going into uh, processed food in Australia that is part of the global free trade in uh, food ingredients. And we're expected to eat this food and stay healthy. Well, that's the challenge, of course. Uh, and I think that... Uh, as I said to a, a review of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority last Thursday when they um, interviewed us, at the moment the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority doesn't assess the other chemicals that are in with the active ingredients. So when they consider something like Roundup, which is glyphosate-based herbicide, it also has a number of other constituents in it that are things like surfactants which spread the chemical across the plants to get a better weed kill. They are not assessed. They're part of the mix. They, of course, remain on the product and uh, in our food supply, but they're not assessed. The other things that are not assessed are the interactional or the synergistic effects of the different chemicals involved as well. They just look at the active ingredient so if you've got these 12 different herbicide residues on the corn imported in, the, in that ingredient, the interactional effects and also the long-term health effects that might result from that are not uh, um, evaluated or assessed at all. This is something we've been raising with various reviews of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority for a couple of decades at least and we've never had any movement on it at all. They always acknowledge, oh yes, we should be probably looking a bit more, a bit harder at um, these things, but it's just too difficult really because uh, focusing on just one active ingredient is, is easy to do, but doing the tests that would be involved or in finding out about these things interact with each other and what the impacts on the public health long term might be just all seems a bit too difficult. Uh, sorry, we can't do that. Some people say we are wasting our breath going back and back to each different uh, review of the pesticides and veterinary medicines system, but I think we need to keep raising the flag on these really critical issues for public health and safety. Well, I would have thought 
irradiating fruit and vegetables was a pretty serious issue as well. Indeed, and this is another one that's coming up. The Food Standards Australia New Zealand has uh, recently publicised uh, an application that they've received from the Queensland government, which has been the main applicant in relation to the irradiation of foods in Australia. A couple of years ago, they got approval to irradiate 26 tropical fruits and vegetables on the grounds that uh, particularly North Queensland is troubled by fruit fly. And markets like New Zealand in particular had said, you've got to treat your fruit fly. We don't want fruit fly in New Zealand. And southern states similarly said that uh, they had concerns about the fruit fly, which was spreading nationally Australia into our fruit and vegetable supplies. So the Queensland government at that time got approval for 26 different tropical fruits and vegetables to be approved. But the latest application is for all fresh fruits and vegetables, just get your head around that, all fresh fruits and vegetables to be approved for irradiation. So to go through a factory which exposes them to high levels of radiation energy, incidentally we should say it does not make the food radioactive, however it does have impacts on the nutritional value of foods, also can leave uh, radiolytic products in those exposed fruits and vegetables as well. So you'd end up with a situation where your supposedly fresh fruit in the fruit and veggie store or the supermarket had been irradiated, had essentially been pre-cooked for you. And while the labelling of irradiated foods is still required, we haven't seen any labelling so far at the point of sale. But I would say that if a banana or some other tropical fruit or a fresh fruit and vegetable from anywhere potentially had a sign on it saying irradiated, I think uh, shoppers would have a very serious concern about that and uh, there'd be a fair number of Australian shoppers who would say, um, I'm not going to buy that. So the labelling is there, whether it will be enforced. But again, this is something coming up this year, a consideration of... uh, all fresh fruits and vegetables being irradiated. Again, this will be justified for the same kinds of reasons as well in relation to imports of fruits and vegetables where uh, the biosecurity arguments that the government's put forward and that it's spending all that money on to try to make sure that new exotic diseases, uh, invasive pests uh, of various kinds don't come into Australia, that this will be argument put forward by the Queensland government and I presume by other governments to say yes we should be irradiating a lot more of the food supply. The consequences of that uh, for long-term health and safety and for the nutritional value of the food is just not properly understood or known. Well finally Bob from Queensland to South Australia and the ALP hasn't done the right thing by many people by farmers in South Australia? Pretty sad. We've been campaigning now for at least a couple of years since the uh, last uh, South Australian election. We had a forum there and we got an agreement from the Labor Party at that meeting and in their election promises that they would maintain, that they would do everything they could to maintain the GM-free status of South Australia 
during this term of the parliament, but under extreme government pressure. The government uh, made promises that it would review the situation of uh, the growing of genetically manipulated canola in South Australia. The moratorium had been in place since 2004 when all of the states in Australia had moratoria, but others like Victoria and Western Australia and New South Wales had gradually lifted their bans on the growing of genetically manipulated crops. But South Australia had a ban, which was to run until 2025. Anyway, a few weeks ago, after the government had been in the sorry situation of having its uh, proposals to uh, lift the GM moratorium rejected on three different occasions by the parliament, uh, during the recess, the Labor Party did a deal with the government and the deal is that local councils should decide whether or not they want to remain GM-free. Impractical proposition because there are something like 50 different councils in South Australia. One of them has already been declared GM-free and it will remain, so that's Kangaroo Island, which of course is off the coast. We now have for six months, the next six months, the situation where we're going to be campaigning yet again get local councils to agree to remain GM-free, patchwork of GM and GM-free zones across the South Australian landscape. And I think the ALP and the government, I'm sure the government put the ALP up to it, have simply put local government in a very invidious position. The local government, government association, which covers all the councils, said um, that the state government has, has just dumped its problem onto local councils and says that they haven't got any resources really to undertake the consultations, the discussions and the collection of information which would have to be about the marketing of uh, primary produce from those local council areas. They have until the 15th of November to decide and then just to put a sting in the tail, Minister Whetstone, the Agriculture Minister, has a right to veto any decision that a council might take. So what we suspect at the moment is that most councils won't participate in this um, charade, that uh, the moratorium on GM canola uh, will be lifted. The vast majority of farmers, around 5,000 farmers, who uh, will remain GM-free, will have no protection from GM contamination. That was to have been part of the deal as well, but was dropped. Sad place to leave it there, Bob, but um, I'll talk to you again next month. Okay. If anybody wants to give us a bell, they can do that to follow up any of our stories. 5968 2996. COVID-19. No radiophone. You thought you were left off the hook. Sorry. We need money to survive. And you need a legal legitimate tax deduction before the end of the year. So, we're having a June Solidarity Station appeal. So we can remain independent, community owned and believe it or not, radical during COVID-19. This is a great way to do what the rich and powerful do. Support the charities that you like, like 3CR, and get a legal legitimate tax deduction. If they can do it, you can do it. You can do it in a number of ways. 
you can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, follow the prompts. And for the dinosaurs out there like me, you can always send a cheque made out to 3CR to Post Office Box 1277. That's Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And before you know it, you'll get your legal legitimate tax deduction. And remember all that COVID-19 extra money you've got for JobSeeker? Well... Now that you live in the lap of luxury, maybe you'd like to put some into 3CR's pocket and you can feel really good about keeping 3CR on air. And also, put down your favourite program when you donate. It has been noted that the arrival of the Iranian tanker Fortune to the refinery in El Palito in Venezuela has a meaning far, far greater than the quantity of gasoline and other crucial supplies transported in the ship. I asked Dr Tim Anderson if this was the first significant unblocking of Venezuela by the US. Yeah, recently on Venezuela, yes it is, because in this case the US had made specific threats to Iran and to Venezuela, and now in both cases there's extreme sanctions against both countries, and so they defied that threat, and um, as far as I know, three of the five ships have, have got through. Well, I suppose if you've got that many sanctions on you, it doesn't really matter, you just ignore it, do you? Is that what happens? Because whether you... Whether you do or you don't, you're damned. I think uh, one of the lessons from this, and it was in an, in an article, a couple of articles have written about this, one by Atilio Boron in Latin America, is that the US will militarily attack countries that are defying them if they are small and weak and disarmed. And a good example of that was Libya. Basically, Libya was an independent state in many respects with some achievements, but it was persuaded to disarm and then it was destroyed. Whereas Iran we've seen has been able to respond when the Iranian general was murdered. For example, the Iranian armed forces responded directly to a U.S. base. So that similarly, Venezuela, which is, uh, has got a, an armed forces which is quite loyal now, unique in Latin American history, quite loyal to the, the process, the revolutionary process that's going on there um, because it's been consolidated to some extent. They also have a significant independent armed force and also a four million person civilian militia, some of whom captured that the recent mercenary incursion you may have read about on the, um, on the coast where some small boats were attempting to bring mercenaries into the country. So both Venezuela and Iran are armed and prepared to defend themselves. Of course, no side wants escalation, but we've seen that the US has effectively deterred from intervening and trying to block these ships. I suppose it would have taken a fair bit of planning to work out for these four ships to come. Is that true? I imagine so, although they weren't navally escorted across the Atlantic. And remember, they did. the British, I think, intercepted a, a ship, uh, an Iranian ship at Gibraltar some time back. So there were precedents for that sort of intervention. But certainly when the ships got within the territorial waters of Venezuela, they were escorted in by the Venezuelan military, Air Force and, and Navy and so on. Certainly there was a lot of coordination. This isn't the first time it's happened, of course, between Iran and Venezuela. But when President 
Chavez was there, there was aid sent from Venezuela to Iran back in 2008, 2009, when Iran had some needs at that time. So it's a collaboration that's gone on for some time, and indeed the Iranians are talking about, they're even using the phrases of Hugo Chavez to say, with, you repay love with love and so on. So even though they're very different cultures, they're sharing some of the historical expressions of, of cooperation between the countries. Are you aware of what the goods on the ships are? More or less. It's not. It's no secret. Most of it is fuel, or different types of fuel. But there are also chemicals that are needed, apparently, to restart some of the refineries. Um, Venezuela has a refinery capacity, which is certainly sufficient for Venezuela, but uh, some of those refineries are out of action because of shortages of parts and components and so on. And apparently there are chemical components also that are required to restart some of the refineries in Venezuela and bring its capacity back up. It, the capacity was at a very low, I think about only about 10% of its maximum earlier this year. Now it's 20%. And with the Iranian additional inputs, it should rise still further. But that's a lot to do with yeah, it seems a contradiction that Venezuela, which is a major oil producer and has uh, refinery capacity, is importing fuel, but that's the reason there's this temporary need. Where is Iran exporting its gasoline to, apart from bringing it into Venezuela with the blockade? China, India. Uh, it's doing it through intermediaries too, so there's still a trade going on. China has specifically rejected the, the unilateral US measures. I mean, remember... These measures by the U.S. now apply to so many countries. They apply to dozens of countries because they affect third parties. The U.S., under Trump in particular, but it was happening under Obama to have been imposing fines, financial penalties. They're not really fines in, a, in an international law sense, but imposing these large, more or less protection payments on large European banks if they're found to be doing business in contravention of... U.S. unilateral laws against Iran, against Cuba, for example. I counted up at one stage the fines, in, in quotes, imposed on European banks um, under the Obama administration for doing business with Iran and Cuba, and it was something like 5 or $6 billion. So those banks were paying this money to the U.S. Treasury, even though they weren't required to you know, under European law, international law, there was no requirement on them. But the U.S. argument, of course, is that, well, if you want to keep doing business in the U.S., you'll reach some agreement, some accommodation with the U.S. Treasury. So there's always been that sort of pressure. And then recently, you may have seen, about two months ago, there was a letter from 18 countries which have unilateral coercive measures imposed on them by the U.S. to the U.N. saying, look, in the current pandemic, we asked the UN to use its offices to remove these, they don't call them sanctions, they call them unilateral coercive measures because they are illegal or they're a form of siege warfare, basically. The number of countries that are experiencing and reacting to these so-called sanctions is increasing. What has China done for both Iran and Venezuela in terms of breaking blockades on both of those countries? Well, China is playing a cautious role, a very important counterweight role, but a cautious role because historically, of course, China has been, in recent decades, has been very codependent on the US in particular. That is to say, the trade between, the huge trade surplus that China has with the US is an incentive for, for China to keep on doing business. Even though 
China decided to join the rest of the world in 2008 and diversify away from the US dollar, but it's the, the extent of its business with the US is substantial and it's done as much as it can to try and keep that going. Of course, with the Trump administration, the difficulties have increased basically because effectively there's a type of cold war and it's a trade war and it's a it has to do with the currency and it's a technological war too. You see the US matches against Huawei, which is becoming probably the leading telecom company in the world. China has really, uh, what to say, it's, it's a cautious role with trying to avoid conflict with the US at all costs because of that economic codependency. Nevertheless, um, it will dig its heels in as the US increases those sorts of pressures. And China has important relations with other countries. I mean, the big fear that the US has is that there's going to be a normalization between Asia and Europe, basically. That, that's Eurasia is a big nightmare, in a sense, for the US because the US is trying to maintain its presence in Asia. It's trying to control Europe still through NATO and through the European Union. But um, the normalization between Europe and Russia and China, the whole Eurasian thing is the big uh, bogeyman, more or less, for the US and its, its view of its future power in the world. Are you expecting more ships to come from Iran to Venezuela in the near future? Yes, I think they'll, we'll see. Um, it's a precedent which has really important international implications. You know, other countries will look at this and they'll see that there is a process whereby if the sanctioned countries get together, they can do things independently of the US, um, regardless of the threats. But of course, the little countries will still be intimidated, but it's, it's very important that this collaboration around the world basically you know across thousands of kilometers is going on and that what the u.s says is not necessarily the rule basically i think a lot of the the sanctions a lot of the the u.s domination of world politics has been to do with bluff to a large extent and they're seeing that two countries admittedly two significantly fairly large countries with significant capacity and able to defend themselves are now able to go their own way and ignore those threats. And I think most of the world will, will applaud that and will see that, that that type of bullying, the type of protection racket that's been going on with the U.S. Remember, this is the U.S. at this time in history is really being challenged um, in an iconic way, very powerfully, that their capacity to protect their own people during this pandemic has been shown to be one of the worst in the world, if not the worst in the world. And their economic power has diminished. So in a sense, they are trying a lot of um, maneuvers to try and maintain their, their economic dominance through rents, through trying to control technology. You know, Trump has been threatening to or has been trying to claim a technological edge with medication, new medications, new vaccines in relation to the pandemic, for example. They've been sanctioning Huawei because they don't want... China to control the new 5G technology that's going to take over household devices in the next few years. There's a huge technological and ideological war going on there. And the US is really on the back foot. It's economic power. We know very well that uh, the center of production in the world has shifted to East Asia. The center of technology, the, the cutting edge in technology is also shifting away from the US. So this is a US really very much in putting aside just the personality of Trump, the US generally is in a type of retreat and 
is quite dangerous in the sense that it's trying to hang on to its preeminent position in face of substantial threats. The other issue, Tim, is how Venezuela and Iran have protected their citizens during this COVID-19 crisis. Compared maybe to, we're thinking Mm. of Venezuela to um, Latin America, but Iran in the countries surrounding Iran, how are these two countries doing? Yeah, quite differently, really. If we start with Venezuela, Venezuela, for a number of circumstances, partly luck, partly also the fact that there has not been a big influx of people until recently to Venezuela in terms of tourism other ways. There has been recent emigration from Venezuela that's that's changed recently. But for whatever reason, there's been very, very low level of uh, COVID-19 infections in Venezuela, very, very low, the lowest rate in Latin in certainly in South America, and I think the lowest rate in Latin America also. That's changing a little bit now because, as you may have seen, there are new waves of infections in South America, particularly in Brazil and Ecuador, for example, also to some extent Peru and Chile. I think Ecuador has the highest rate and Brazil, being a huge country, has the highest number. And now daily deaths in Brazil are are greater than the US now, just in the last few days. So Venezuela has escaped that to a large extent, but then Venezuela shares a border with Brazil and and there's a significant new wave of immigrants coming back into Venezuela, in part conditioned by that. I mean, the current crisis means we've got this epidemic crisis, but we've also got economic serious economic recession, if not depression, associated with it because of the shutdown of industries and so on. So a number of the migrants from uh, the emigrants from Venezuela who went to the US and to Colombia and to Ecuador are now coming back because there's a public health system in Ecuador. There's a social security system there. There's some economic relief. And also there's a, it's much less dangerous than Ecuador, which is in a terrible state at the moment, for example. So there is a, just in the last week or two, there's been a surge in cases in Venezuela, but from a very low base. I think that um, Venezuela's taken the situation seriously. They have been prudent, as a number of other countries, including independent countries, I mean, have been prudent with low levels of infection to make sure that that stays the case. But Venezuela is facing a challenge now. There's a problem in reading this, of course, because there's still a huge propaganda war against Venezuela. And I, I was looking yesterday at um, some headlines. The Financial Times in England, for example, is saying, is COVID-19 going to topple the Maduro regime? Which is one of these wishful thinking sort of headlines, you know, because the lowest rate in Latin America, you know, is if it's going to be a challenge. Uh, I think also I think they'll manage it reasonably well because there is a quite a strong public sector in health, in, in including preventive health in Venezuela. In Iran, the situation's fairly different. Iran was hit the worst of all of the Middle Eastern countries, really, if we ignore maybe Qatar, which also has a problem, and there's a major U.S. base there, too. One thing we might come back to is that the, the U.S. military bases are a significant threat in this respect, but Iran had quite a big surge of infections in late February, and some of this Perhaps a lot of it is to do with the fact that Iran is a significant pilgrimage site. You've got holy sites there, which many millions of people go to constantly, all year round, both from within Iran, it's a big country with over 80 million people, and from the region. So the centre of the, the infections in Iran in February, March was in Qom, the holy city of Qom, where there's a lot of uh, infections and 
there's significant public pressure in Iran to not close shrines. So, uh, but unfortunately, what the, what that's meant is that after the numbers falling off, I- Iran is going through a second wave of infections. Now, I believe some of it's to do with the shrines, particularly in Mashhad, for example. So, the government's uh, it's got a strong uh, public health sector in Iran. Also, it's a mixed hybrid system, but with a strong preventive and local primary treatment sector. But there is this problem of the shrines and and many millions of pilgrims, some of whom, by the way, there's a lot of, um, I have to say, it, uh, it's an old sort of superstitious practice that they want to, you know, touch the shrines and they even want to kiss it and, and, you know, have some intimate contact with the shrine. You imagine millions of people going through those things. There's a serious hygiene problem going on there. The government of Iran, in response to that, has imposed some particular restrictions on shrines, for example, where I think it's compulsory now to wear masks and to do some sanitation, you know, to to wash your hands with some chemical and to bring your own prayer mats, for example, the, the big shrine in, in Mashhad, for example. I believe they're enforcing those sort of restrictions now because they are facing a, a second surge. And it's said, probably with some reason, that this was due to them loosening their quarantine restrictions a little bit too early. Is their health system compromised by sanctions? Yes, it is, uh, because... Even though there's a pharmaceutical industry and there's a fairly good, fairly strong public sector within the health system in Iran, these systems always depend to some extent on imports, you know, parts, machinery, for example. You know, like, you know, the Germans make very good scanning machines, you know, that scan full bodies and so so on. There's Japanese, there's German technology. Everyone these days is, to a certain extent, globalised with technology, and that includes the inputs for pharmaceutical manufacturing and so on. It includes a whole range of things. So China has been playing quite a positive role here, helping with protective equipment specifically for the epidemic, for example. But every health system is vulnerable to to a degree to having its import blocked. So Iran has suffered to that extent. And of course, this is a, what do they call it, maximum pressure regime where they're also attacking financial channels, you know, for exports or imports, basically. So those uh, illegal, unilateral coercive measures, as they've been called now, sanctions makes it sound like it's something legal or something in response to some bad behavior. The illegal, unilateral, coercive measures, I call it an economic siege. It is hurting Iran. Even big countries are affected by this. Finally, Tim, the impact of US military bases around the world with the spread of this virus. There must be a serious risk involved in all of the 800 US military bases around the world because although information on infections and deaths from those bases has been suppressed, we do have information from the 150 US military bases in the US and there are very large levels of infections. It's a significant vector of infection within the U.S., those 150 military bases, and they're spread around the U.S. The blackout on information from the bases internationally, particularly the one in Qatar, for example, which is the biggest air base in the Middle East, shouldn't hide the fact that there is a serious risk going on. And on top of that, we have illegal U.S. military occupations, for example, of South Syria and Northeast Syria, which is going to likely have a, have a flow-on effect at some stage. So it's a significant vector risk of the U.S. military bases in all countries. I mean, also you've got them coming and going from Germany, for example, and other parts of Europe where there, are, there have been very large uh, levels of infection. So 
because they travel around the world, they, they are certainly a, a huge risk to transmit this epidemic and create new outbreaks. And thanks once again to Dr. Tim Anderson. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible, and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us, is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au.